Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here today with Pranadi Varshne, the founder of Yoga Shala West in Los Angeles, who is a mom of two and has been practicing Ashtanga Yoga for 15 years. Pranadi is an Indian-American born in Delhi, raised in the U.S., and I'm super grateful that you reached out to be a part of this conversation with me. So thank you, Pranadi, for being here today. Thanks, Kino. Thanks so much for having me. It's really um, a pleasure and an honor. So I was really inspired by uh, what you said when you had reached out to me that um, it's very that you felt that it was very important in the conversation and representation and voices around yoga to include people of South Asian descent. And this is something that is talked about in the contemporary yoga world, particularly in the West these days. And I was wondering, what are your feelings on that? And what is your unique perspective as someone that potentially sits uh, with, 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 with um, you know, two juxtaposing perspectives? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, happy to speak on that. Um, and, you know, first, I want to say a huge thank you to you, uh, because I reached out because I noticed as I was um, scrolling through your podcast, the guests you've been having, I was like, wow, she has already had like so many guests of South Asian descent and, you know, about topics like holy and, um, and, and things like that. I just I just found it really cool that you are using your platform to raise up South Asian voices and I think these days in the conversation around cultural appropriation and representation, we have a tendency to not celebrate what's already being done really well. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate you you using your platform to, to do that, to lift up our voices. Um, and I, I perceive it as a way of you also, you know, perhaps um, giving back to the practice that has given you so much. And this is your life. Your, your, your life is sharing yoga. And so it means a lot to me that, that you were, um, yeah, you know, giving back in this way and lifting others up along with you. Oh, thank um, you. And I think that's, I appreciate yeah, that. yeah. And that, that's sort of where I'm coming from these days. I feel like there's, we spend so much time online, you know, uh, on social media and things like that. And there's a lot of talk in the yoga world around these topics. And the tendency can be to be quite negative and 
you know, sort of just pile on and be really critical. Um, and I, instead, I think it's important to celebrate what's, what's going really well. And I do, what I see a lot uh, in the yoga world is a desire to try, to try and embrace yoga's authenticity um, in whatever way speaks to each practitioner and each teacher. You know, I think that teachers who've spent a lot of time in India uh, will bring a certain perspective. And then teachers who haven't will bring their own perspective. But there are also still ways of honoring um, yoga's roots. And, uh, and being, for me, it's all about being authentic, you know, each person honoring their authenticity and embodying yoga as a practice rather than as a product. I really like that. I just want to repeat that for everyone, embodying yoga as a practice instead of a product, you know, and that's, I think that's so important, you know, that, I mean, in terms of my relationship to the practice, I never thought that I was going to be a yoga teacher. I just wanted to go yeah. practice. So for, for me, this was always a practice first and foremost. And within our Ashtanga yoga system, it is almost uh, kind of leading the pathway to really honor that authentic lineage-based practice. And mm-hmm. so many students are encouraged to go to India to make this trip to, you know, almost like, you know, the Mecca of Ashtanga. Everybody wants to yeah. go to Mysore and figure out what's going on there and practice with Patavi Joyce and now practice with Shara Joyce and, you know, mm-hmm. see what's happening there. And all the teachers pushes everybody to go there. And, um, you know, it, within Ashtanga yoga, I've noticed over the last, you know, more than 20 years that I've been practicing, when I first went to India, there were no Indian students, mm-hmm. you know? And then yeah. now there start to be both in the early morning classes and in the afternoon classes, a lot of Indian students, which is really exciting. Yeah. Have you noticed that shift as That's well? That's so interesting. That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Because um, I think this piece also often gets lost in the conversation, which is that we actually do, um, we do want to acknowledge the Westerners that came and popularized this practice, you know? Um, when I, when I, I only went to Mysore once and, um, that was right after Patabi Joyce died. So in 2010, um, and I had this experience where I was, uh, living with, uh, nobody that was practicing yoga. I was just staying in a flat with, uh, three other local Indian women. Um, and it was so funny because they were like, you're here to do yoga? Like, <laughs> whoa okay all right okay cool um so yeah I would just like get up every morning and go to the shala and come back and then spend the rest of my time hanging out with these women who were just living their lives um so yeah I I do I totally have that have that experience in which I you know I've seen that people in India don't practice that much yoga (laughs) maybe you know now perhaps more so um, definitely more so. But I think part of that is it getting popularized through the Western practitioners. And I really think that without the Western practitioners, there's no way that specifically Ashtanga Yoga would have spread the way that it has now and had the global reach that it has. And even for me, you know, people, I've made this joke a bunch of times that because I'm Indian, people assume that I popped out of the womb practicing yoga. But my first yoga teacher was uh, a white woman on a VHS tape when I was in high school in the States, you know? <laughs> so it's just, we can come to the practice in so many ways. Um, and it's, it's interesting, 
you know, something, again, I think that gets lost in this conversation around cultural appropriation and representation is that the place that yoga practice takes in Indian culture, I think is, it's, it's different than what we, what those of us who do yoga as a profession or as, as, a, as a lifestyle, you know, sometimes understand. In India, what I, what I have seen is that yoga practice is just a part of your day. It's just, you do it, and then you get on with the rest of your life, you know? You don't need to think about it all day or talk about it all day or type online about it all day. You just do your practice and get on with it. And uh, I, I think that piece is missing in, in some, because we can get so obsessed with the practice, I think, those of us who have made it our life, you know, um, that it becomes almost too important, you know? Uh, so I, I think it's important to kind of look to Indian culture in that way also as an example of, okay, like how, how, how is yoga supposed to be incorporated into our daily lives? So many interesting points there. And maybe the first of which is that many people who come and take a yoga class and kind of go full on into that immersive, you know, I want everything to be about yoga. Let me change my diet, give away all my leather and only, <laughs> you know, put organic coconut oil on my face. I mean, I did that in the beginning <laughs> too, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I think that, I think that what people don't understand is that there, you know, there's the path of the householder. And then in that mm -hmm. way, there's that integration of, okay, I want to, you know, this is going to make me a better human being in what my householder duties are. If I'm going to be a better mom, I'm going to be a better, you know, at my profession, I'm going to be a better member of my family, of my community, of my society, that sort of thing. And then there's the renunciate's path. And then the renunciate, yeah, you right. live and breathe that every day. You've taken vows of renunciation. So it's like, right, maybe we've gotten those two conflated a little bit. And then we're like yeah. trying to hold the householder to the renunciate standard. And then it, it, like, it doesn't necessarily, you know, work. So, and I think, I think an example of that from the, like Western culture would be someone misunderstanding, you know, um, the, the way that yoga can be a profession. So there's sometimes people that will say, oh, you teach yoga, yoga should be free. It's like, well, mm -hmm. not exactly. If you're the renunciate, you're actually taking a vow that you, you know, live off of alms. So you don't charge for your teaching, but in the householder, it's like a different path. So right. it's hard to navigate between that. And then the other thing that I do want to just draw a little bit of attention to, which is, you know, when you said that, um, that not many people practice yoga in India, I think it, I think it definitely has changed over the last 20 mm -hmm. years, but I feel like we need to like, also like dissect that. Like, so if you look at the nuance, it's like, well, why not? Right. Oh, well, yeah. we have this, I guess like there's, there's, there's a, probably a couple of different implications of that or, or reasons for that. And of course, like the big elephant in the room that we kind of need to address is colonialism. You know, the impact of the, you know, the British occupation and how the, the British Raj uh, categorized and presented yoga and sort of, you know, um, sort of kind of created the, the imagery around yoga potentially in a way to discourage people from practicing. So, so there's that element. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and continue. Yeah. 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 And, and then there's also the, the element of, you know, the, what, like yoga asana is one thing, but there's many people yeah, exactly. that might not do asanas with, in India, but they have other practices, a puja practice, you know, um, visiting yeah. the temple, something like this, that if exactly. you take the broader picture of yoga, it's like, well, that was already part of their day. Maybe they chanted the Gita in the morning and they didn't do any asanas, exactly. but like that is yoga. 
you know? Yeah. And that's what I mean is that what I've observed growing up in the culture is exactly that, is that, okay, you might do a few asanas, some stretching in the morning, you may do a little pranayama in the night before you go to bed, or in the morning, you may, like you said, go into the puja room and, and chant some mantras and that's the yoga. But in all those things, you sort of do it and then you get on. You know, it's not, it's not, <laughs> and it's, it's in a way, you know, it's like brushing the teeth in the sense that mm-hmm. it's so important. And yet it's, how do I say it? it's like, it's, it's very, very important, but perhaps it's not the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters in the day, right? Like if you stop brushing your teeth for years, you're going to have some issues probably. <laughs> That'd be horrible. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and in that same way, I think it's like that. Like if you stop doing these small daily practices, life gets worse, generally mm-hmm. speaking, you know. Um, but we don't, but most people in India are not spending 90 to 120 minutes every day doing asana. That's just, mm-hmm. and not just in India, around the world. Who has time for that? Mm-hmm. You know, like who, who really does? Mm-hmm. And if as yoga teachers, that's what we're teaching. I, you know, I, I think that it's, there are some, it's inherently problematic a little bit. You know, it, specifically in Ashtanga, because the way that the practice is taught is like you must progress, you know, in the conventional way. You must progress through X, Y, Z before you get to X, Y, Z. Um, it can set up a system of practice in which the expectation is you have to be able to devote this amount of time to be doing a practice. And we really have tried to break out of that, you know, at our shala um, and just make practices as, as accessible as, as possible. Uh, because I do want people to experience the benefit, even if they don't have the privilege or the opportunity or the circumstance to be able to spend mm-hmm. that amount of time. That's a super good point about accessibility. Sometimes we think of accessibility just in terms of, you know, ableism and, mm-hmm. you know, okay, are you, your, you know, level of flexibility or, you know, age or size or shape of the body. But of course, accessibility is also how much time do you have the luxury in each day to devote to the practice. Mm-hmm. And maybe someone who, you know, you're a yoga teacher, that's your profession, you have a different type of profession, then yeah, you probably have more time than someone who say, you know, is a working, maybe you're a teacher, a public school teacher, or you have, right. you know, you're an accountant or something like this. And maybe you can carve out, you know, 30 minutes, but that's really all you have. So then there's not, the, the accessibility is, is a big question because if you stick to rigidly to the Ashtanga method in 30 minutes, what can you do? Right. Well, you know? let me tell you that you can do a lot. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're not too rigidly on the method, you know? Exactly. That's the thing. Right? If you're too rigidly... You able to break out. Yeah, then you you're like, okay, every day I have 30 minutes. What can I do? I guess I'm on Suryanamaskar and standing for the rest of my life. Like for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> you, know? you know, I have these... Um, I have my. I have a teaching partner at the Shala, and she told me like, man, Pranadi, your superpower is instant pot practices. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> because I'm a mama too, you know, my, my kids are one and four. Uh-huh. And so it's, it's full on at home. And sometimes I only have 30 minutes, even as a yoga teacher to do my practice. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I have totally given myself the permission to break out of the mold because I've been practicing for long enough that I have, you know, mm-hmm. a pretty decent vocabulary in asana. And so I can follow a general flow, but sort of pick and choose um, what I need for that day and go ahead and get it done in 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever. And what I like is that 
the students at the chalet see that. They see me mm-hmm. practicing because I practice at the chalet either before or after I teach. And so I think it gives them an inherent permission to go ahead and do that themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, as a parent, I think that's all I can do is really teach through modeling. We can tell our kids all day long what to do and not to do. It doesn't really work. They're going to do what they see us doing. Yeah. Yeah. And the same oh, thing as a teacher, you know, you can say all day long to your students, yes, we, you can be, you know, loose with say, you can be whatever. But if they see you doing the same practice every single day, then that inherently that's the permission that they're getting. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I even see it as a visiting teacher to people's studios where, you know, a teacher will say, this is the alignment, this is, this is how it is. And, you know, and then the student, and then maybe they don't actually do that in their practice. What I notice is that the students do what the teacher does. And it's strange. It's like, even (laughs) if the teacher is saying something else, the students move in the way that the teacher moves. Mm -hmm. They, they somehow, they adopt the same, you know, um, breath uh, and they adopt the same kind of, you know, spatial orientation and that sort of thing, which is, it's just, it's just so true. We have, we have this kind of kinesthetic sensibility of the person next to us. And when they come and assist us, it's like the body communicates with the body and you can yeah. give lip service to one thing, but um, you know, it's so true. So, yeah. so true in that way. Uh, in regards to accessibility, um, I've been kind of working on a project that's going to take me a little while about, about making Ashtanga accessible. Mm-hmm. And I remember that when I started doing this, the sort of yoga police would kind of be, or Ashtanga police would be like, (laughs) you are using a block, you know? And it's like, you are putting, (laughs) you you let them, you let them move on and they're on a strap. And then, and then it's like, right, well, you haven't seen anything yet. Here's a chair. Right, 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 right. So have the Ashtanga police been after you? Have you had any any oh, yeah. interactions the police, with them? Yeah, the police <laughs> have been after me for like a decade. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, to be quite honest, yes, because, um, you know, I, I let go of that orthodoxy a long time ago. My teacher, um, one of my first Ashtanga teachers was Manju Joyce, and he let mm-hmm. go of that orthodoxy a long time mm-hmm. ago himself. And so that was always, like I said, we like we emulate our teachers. And so, you know, I, he was a renegade. And I, so I've sort of been a renegade since the beginning, too. Um, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I see, you know, for me, that's what feels really alive is to, is to, is to find freedom and joy and laughter in this practice. And I feel if we're so rigid and subscribed to this is the right way, then yoga becomes um, burden and a, almost like a, a discipline that is um, practiced as a punishment rather than out of love and joy mm. yeah I really yeah and so, and so man, that's what I that's what I'd like to um, that's what I feel passionate about uh, sharing you know mm-hmm. is, is this that this practice can really be one of of joy and community I feel like that you know gosh we all collectively, been through two and a half years of of the opposite of community of sort of being even afraid of each other and anxious about being in contact with each other um and it was so important to me you know I live in California Michelle is in LA as soon as possible as soon as we were allowed to get back in person to really just get in there you know we as soon as I could open the shala I did and um you know online yoga is great um it, it definitely has its um advantages 
Um, but as soon as we opened in person, it was like, everyone was like, oh, right. Like we remember like why we gather in person to do this practice. You know, mm-hmm. there's a reason, there's a different feeling when we're in person. Um, yeah. So I, that's, that's another thing that I just feel really passionate about is, is cultivating community through this practice because it, it really is one of love and So I really like that this distinction between, say, you know, practicing from a punitive mindset versus practicing from the mindset of love and joy. So when we talk about Ashtanga yoga, uh, there's from the very beginning kind of was presented as this is a devotional practice. You know, it's a devotional practice. Mm -hmm. And then what does that mean? Well, you know, I think some people placed asana on the pedestal of devotion rather than understanding that the devotional practice means to cultivate the qualities of love and joy. So it's yeah. like, it's like a, a, a distinction. So it's like, well, you could get obsessed with that asana and everybody's gone through periods of that. And it's not uh, bad if we're obsessed with an asana yeah. for here. And this also, we're not saying that you shouldn't do that. Like it's totally normal. Um, at the same time, it's, if you get stuck there and, and make your devotion to asana, then we miss the love and joy of the practice. Yes, because ultimately what are we doing in an asana practice is cultivating a relationship with ourselves. And if mm-hmm. we are not able to cultivate a loving and joyful relationship with our authentic selves, then there, we don't have any hope of, of cultivating that with anybody else. And this is, like you said, it's not to poo-poo asana. I really think asana is very, very valuable. Um, in my, you know, in my circumstance in life right now, being a mother of these two young children, you know, some, uh, I'm, I'm still nursing my son and I recently just stopped nursing him at night, but there, there, for the last several months, you know, I have not gotten a full night's sleep. Sometimes for the first six months of his life, I basically sat upright, I slept upright. And so asana was the place I went to like work all that out, like work all mm-hmm. that tension out, physical tension, emotional, just like gunk, you know, mental fog. Anyone who's been you know, a parent of a newborn will know there's like a lot of shit you need to clear out to be able to be present for your child um, and for yourself frankly and asana has been such a gift to me that way I'm so so grateful that I've had the last 10 to 15 years to develop a vocabulary of practice that I can now use in these moments when I really need it so asana is really really valuable as long as we like you said practice it with this awareness of what is the intention mm-hmm. you know the intention is to have this loving relationship with one's body and one's inner self and to and to learn about yourself uh yeah and cultivate that love and joy like you said so that we can hopefully share it with our with our family with our community our friends our wider circles mm-hmm. what is the best the biggest misconception that um students have when they walk in the door to practice with you you know like a new student what are some what are the biggest misconceptions I, I, I think, you know, probably every Ashtanga, my an, Ashtanga teacher might answer with a similar um, response, which is like that perception is that it's so, so rigid and sort of mm-hmm. scary. And uh, what's funny is that people have that, that perception and they come in and they walk into the shala and do they meet me or they just kind of feel the vibe and it's like not that at all. And so it, I think people realize pretty quickly, at least at our shala, that we're much more open and free and and there's usually laughter in the room I, I think that that mm-hmm. helps a lot um yeah but but I think those of us who are leaders in this space have some work to do and in, in kind of being more public maybe about that so that we can start to 
uh, dismantle some of those perceptions that people hold, you know, mm-hmm. like kind of maybe prevent them from even walking in their walking in the door or sending me an email or whatever as a new student. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I I feel very much that the Ashtanga community is in a transition and, oh, yeah. and accessibility is a big part of that transition, as well as just kind of, you know, reconceptualizing what lineage means, you know, and yeah. so there's this, so there's like this interesting, um, you know, positioning in the yoga world where there's a reckoning in the broader sort of Western yoga world that says, you know, we've got to acknowledge yoga's roots. We need to understand the difference between cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. And then, um, and that, that's a bigger, very necessary, you know, conversation, the broader sort of Western yoga world. Um, uh, and then in the Ashtanga world, there's this kind of conversation about, well, what is our lineage and right. what is the reckoning that's happening within our lineage? And there are some people that have like broken ties with India and then they mm-hmm. don't mention Patabi Joyce or Sharat Joyce anymore right. or right. any, you know, and they just, uh, they, they've kind of come up with a, they won't call it Mysore style practice anymore. Right. They'll call it like open space or something like this. Yeah. And, you know, like cut the ties with the lineage and, yeah. and then, and then there's people within the lineage that are kind of working on what that means. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, um, conversation. I think that's happening. It is a really interesting conversation. And I think that there's, there's not going to be one like sure and clear path forward. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a moment of divergence and perhaps not divergence seems like a kind of a negative word, but perhaps just expansion mm-hmm. of what, what it is, like you said, that this lineage means. And it, it's interesting. I've always existed sort of outside the mainstream lineage, um, but also it kind of links back to what I was saying earlier is that I think, I think, you know, we want to do the right thing. We want to say the right thing right now in this, in this cultural moment, I think, you know, there are a lot of us who are trying to make it right, but that also leaves out room for complexity and nuance and making mistakes. And sort of just trusting that we are all trying to figure it out. And yeah, maybe some people feel better changing changing the name of practice from Mysore style to self-paced or whatever it is that they're using, because that makes them feel better about what they're doing. And other people feel okay using Mysore style still, because it, it does link back you know, it gives them that sense of linking back to something bigger than oneself. Um, and it's just a small example of just using a different lens instead of saying, okay, well, we should call it this or we should stick with the old way. Perhaps just kind of seeing that everyone is trying. Everyone is trying to find a path forward in this a really complex moment for our lineage. You that's know, a really good perspective. And, and just, and just, just try, like, I, and that's where I feel like we, our practice is an embodiment practice. It's a practice grounded in our bodies and grounded in real life. And yet we spend a lot of time having these types of conversations in front of our keyboards. And I really, and you know, I wonder how many times when somebody is typing a nasty comment or whatever, even if they're a yogi, are they embodied in that moment? You know, like, are they tapped into what they're feeling and are they coming from a place of love and compassion? Or are they coming from a place of hurt that's being, you know, actually fueled through some 
Like, you know, it, the, the comment may seem like hateful or angry, but it's really like some hurt that's, that's inside. And if you were embodied, you might be able to pick up on that and wait a moment before responding. You know, I, I just feel like we, we really need to use our yoga practice, even in these conversations. That makes so much sense. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, like if the whole planet would just take a moment and become embodied before replying to social media comments. I think that was on a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. Or before posting on social media, if uh, people writing various news articles would be embodied while they were writing that news article, you know, then I think, yeah, yeah, this would be, you know, they were in touch with uh, the hurt and the woundedness that was was inside and uh, were able to kind of hold that in a space of compassion and wisdom. Yeah, I mean this is uh, this is kind of what we're all on the path for, right? And and it's so it's so easy to to get off the path and just easily kind of lapse into judgment, to lapse into separation, to lapse into even within you know, even within uh, our own community to create these you know circular firing squads where we're most yeah. critical on people that are most close to us. You know, so we see yeah. a fellow Ashtangi that gives somebody a block and they're now they're the worst ever. You know, <laughs> at, at, at some moment there was someone that like that that I'd heard had referred to me as the most dangerous person on the planet. Wow. And, and I, was, I mean, I kind of I took it with a grain of salt because I thought this was humorous <laughs> I, because I thought I could come up with a list of 10 people that I think are quite more dangerous, <laughs> quite a bit more dangerous to the planet yeah. than I am. Um, however, I, I uh, understand that I may appear threatening to you, you know. And then... <laughs> that is, wow, that's quite hyperbolic. But yeah, that is speaks to the climate that we're living in, where people mm-hmm. just want to tear down. And, mm-hmm. and perhaps there's something that, you know, that I'm not perhaps, I'm sure there was something they were triggered by, you know. Um, but instead of... Uh, figuring out a constructive way perhaps to, to voice that or whatever, it just became, you know, gosh, Kino's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm assuming that if, I mean, like, you know, you're very popular in the yoga world. Um, but I don't think like everybody in the planet knows you. So if this person knows you enough to like comment (laughs) <laughs> like I'm assuming that pra- person practices some yoga. They're an Ashtanga teacher. Are you kidding me? That's why I was talking about the circular <laughs> firing squad. So we're like t- we're toughest on people that are closest to us. So it's you know one Ashtanga teacher calling another one. You know, and, the, and this kind of thing is what this is that thing of you know if you if you look if you're you're actually in the same circle and you actually yeah. have quite close values to within to, mm-hmm. to, to someone you may be attacking. And yeah. because you have those close values, it's like you have more cannon fodder for them. But if yeah. you look outside the circle, we see, wow, there are so many people that, you know, could benefit from something that everyone in this circle are saying, even though they're saying slightly different things and maybe even somewhat conflicting things. One says use a block, one say don't use a block, one say you have to, you know, do the, you can't skip any jump backs and you have to do all of them and you're never <laughs> going to move on until you bind. And the one person says that another one says something different, right. but, the, but everybody outside of that circle, if you take your gaze and shift it away from the circle and the one in the circle, you don't like what they're doing, then you could see that, oh, actually this can benefit a lot of people. Right. And hopefully that's like when a new student walks into the room, like, you know, asked that question earlier, 
yeah, hopefully they're, they're, you, you want them to experience the practice as something that's joyful and not, not just like nitpicky, everybody, you know, fighting with each other, because who would want to practice something that makes, turns people into, into that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make such little sense, you know, like if, if we're trying to um, be sort of spokespeople for the practice, or um, I don't know if that's the right word, but people look to us as leaders in this space, then how we behave really matters. How we speak to mm-hmm. each other really matters. Uh, yeah, that's, um, yeah. And uh, it also reminds me of, you know, after, after these revelations about Patabi Joyce came to light, I think there were people, some people in the community who were like, well, really questioned, perhaps the questioning, you know, the questioning is valid. I think the questioning of, okay, well, who's this man who was supposed to be our, you know, guru. And now, you know, there are these, this, we have this new information. And so how do we reconcile the practice with this information and his behavior and all that stuff? And the questioning is totally valid, but I remember some teachers were like, okay, well, I'm going to stop practicing. I'm going to stop teaching. I'm going to cut off all ties with, with my sword, like you said, you know, kind of, sort of cut off. And even that response, I think is valid. If that's the response that one needs to have, you know, that's fine. But then what bothered me about that was that those teachers claiming that that was the right and only response mm-hmm. that I found to be just almost as authoritative or authoritarian as, you know, some of the problems we, we see in, in the lineage based practice can, you know, mm-hmm. there are lineage based practices beautiful when we remember that it's about the disillusion of ego that's why we surrender to a lineage, I think, you know, because then the practice doesn't become about us. Um, but there is in that system a sort of a design flaw in that there, you can perceive that someone is above you and that person has authority over you. And so that system is then also rife for abuse. You know, that power dynamic is sets up a system in which the people below can be abused by the people on top. Um, so just understanding that there, there's complexity here, you know. And so if in our response to these abuses coming to light, we ourselves are becoming authoritarian, then perhaps we need to we need to look at that, you know, and and maybe then stepping outside that system or expanding that system, opening up that system. Um, would be beneficial. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do. You know, that's always how I've um, looked at teaching is sort of trying to dismantle some of the harmful hierarchy, acknowledging that I play the role of teacher at moments, but also that the student um, is my teacher and that we're in a relationship. You know, it's more of a circular relationship rather than a top down. Uh, I think that can go a long way in healing some of yeah. those, those harms. Absolutely. I think it's so good to to really discuss that um, different responses to a traumatic revelation are valid. And in this kind of all or nothing presentation of this is the one way to reply, it's invalidating a whole host of other potential responses, including people that may be in process, you know? Yeah. Um, and so pr- like, you know, people process trauma differently. Some person may 
you know, have experienced it. And then they, they're going through one thing. Some people may not have known it happened and then have taken a long time to realize and acknowledge why this happened because the whole, you know, illusion of the perfect guru is being dismantled and destroyed in that moment as well. And other people immediately have a particular response. And then if we do set up this kind of binary, then it is just a perpetuation again of the, you know, these kind of the, the rigidity and the structures that, you know, are there that created the potential for abuse in the first place. So it's like, it's not an easy answer. You know, it's not, it's not just like, it's like figuring anything out, whether we're figuring out cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation, we're figuring out how to deal with the harm caused by those who've come before us, you know, in lineage, in society and, and these sorts of experiences. And it's like too easy to fall into, here's a list of, uh, here's a list of do's and don'ts. And then you check off those boxes and then you're done. And it's sort of like Mm -hmm. checking off the box of good personhood. And then anybody (laughs) who's not doing exactly that, well, they're in the box of bad personhood. So then you can, and and then you become, you know, and and then what happens in that binary is those who are checking off the box of good personhood become identified with that and sort of rigidly structured in that. And then if we're operating in that binary, it's way too easy to attack those who are not fitting in that mode. Whereas, as you said, if it's really going to be in a relationship of equals on the planet, then everyone is going through their process, you know, yeah. and, you know, if we're going to be in dialogue and in relationship with one another, that has to, that has to kind of happen outside of a binary, you know, it has to yes. happen in, in a different, different system. Yeah, what you're saying is so resonant, and I think it speaks to this moment we find ourselves in culturally also beyond the Ashtanga yoga world or even the yoga world is like politically um socially culturally we are in this space where it seems to be that people are more and more digging in to their side i really like what you said about you know check off the good person box and these are the things that you need to do to be a good person and and often it's like you said it becomes like if you if you're not checking these boxes then you're just you're just not a good person and the minute you start perceiving somebody else as a bad person then you're cutting off their humanity entirely. And we're not, we're not seeing that, the purusha, right? We're not seeing that person's inner divinity anymore if you, if you have just, you know, basically just brushed them off as, as a bad, as, an, as evil. Um, and yeah, I think that's happening everywhere. And I'm so interested in, in trying to find a way to counter that and, and kind of sit with complexity and sit with nuance and actually try to hold multiple multiple perspectives, even when it's uncomfortable for me personally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as, as yogis, we should be the ones leading in that way. We should be able to sit in discomfort in our bodies and, um, and sit with other people in conflict. Absolutely. It's, um, uh, it, it, this this idea of being able to hold at least two, but potentially more, opposing mm-hmm. viewpoints in your mind and in your heart is one of the definitions of higher level intelligence. You know, so if we can only, if there's only, you know, one way, then it's it, it's sort of presented as an idea of you know operating within a binary system, and also in some ways. Um, you know, it's, it's, and of course, there's always, you know, what comes up is there's, of course, there's always going to be a scenario where there is, in fact, one way, you know, 
um, I just saw a train pass by. And uh, I think we can all potentially agree that there aren't so many ways to stop uh, prior to <laughs> sure. the intersection. Like if the yeah. if the bars go down and the train is yeah. approaching, I don't think there are so many so many paths to take. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there's reality, right? Like, right, reality. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's when we conflate our opinion with um, kind of incontrovertible reality. You know, there's a freight train coming at you at 40 miles an hour. If you think that there's many paths for you to cross that freight train, <laughs> reality will have a you know a pretty tough conversation yeah. with you. But yeah. if the freight train isn't there, and you know there's more than one lane in that intersection, there may be room yeah. to negotiate. Yeah. Yeah, choose which way you're going to go. And and people might even like, right? Like using, continuing on this analogy, like, yeah, like if you're driving on a highway, there are multiple lanes to choose from. Yeah, but if you're on a one-way road, you know, you're going to get into an accident if you're driving down the wrong way on that one-way road. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's funny, like something, you know, asana practice is coming to mind um, in that, you know, we have the system, we have primary series, intermediate series, advanced series, and we have sort of the, the orthodoxy, the conventional approach of one posture after the next and hitting these benchmarks before we move on. But if somebody walks in with, with a specific type of body and you can see as a teacher that they are never going to be able to, let's say, put their legs in lotus even or, you know, bind mm-hmm. in Marie and a D. That is the reality, you know. Mm-hmm. But you tell them, well, then this is where you're stopping. And this, you know. I mean, is that really like accepting reality? Like, is that, I just don't, you know, that, that always has baffled me a little bit that, you know, because we all have those students where you can tell, like, this is a body that they've walked in and then in this life, there are going to be some limitations. Mm-hmm. Say and someone yet, has a total knee replacement, for example. Right, exactly. This is a really good example where everybody can agree that there's no amount of stretching. stretching there's no, right. <laughs> there's nothing that's going to make that <laughs> knee bend more than ninety degrees. And if it does right. bend more than ninety degrees, this is highly problematic. <laughs> and so, are you going to tell that student, you know what? After we're going to stop at Marichas and a C, and that's going to be your practice for the next fifty years, and no ustrasana for you ever for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Even less than that, yeah. like they have to stop at the Ardhavada Padmotanasana. Oh my God. You know? Right. So. <laughs> yeah. It's just, um, it's just that, that sort of, oh, that rigid thinking, you know, it's, it's, um, I think it can really get in our way. Definitely. Yeah. So Pranadia, I've really loved this conversation with you and I would love for you to share with people where they can find you if they pass through LA or also maybe if they want to connect with you online or anything. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me online in lots of places. Um, I have a YouTube channel where we have lots of practice videos and I'm really proud of that channel because I don't actually update it very frequently. Like I said, I'm a mom of two young children, but, (laughs) um, uh, I've really made it a point to make those videos really accessible. So we have students of all shapes and sizes practicing Ashtanga yoga. So go take a look. You can find us there. Um, what's, the, find, what's the channel name? Oh, yeah. It's my Pranadivi. So YouTube. And then you can just search Pranadivi. If you search my name, it'll come up. Um, and uh, Yoga Shala West. Of course, you can find us in West LA. Um, we're online too. You can support us on Patreon if you like. Um, yeah, find find me anywhere online and you can always send me an email too at practice at yogashalawest 
Com. I'm happy to uh, support people's practices. And I also just want to, um, you know, give a little shout out, shout out to all the, um, the little shallows that could that have like made it through the pandemic. And maybe you've been, maybe you're listening to this and you've been practicing online for two years or longer than two years. And you're just like thinking about going back in person, but you're not sure. I would really encourage you to do the courageous thing and, and, and support your local community because practicing in person um, is, I, I feel practicing in person and community to just be so important in times like this because it really does force us, us into relationship with other beings. And I think we need more of that. Absolutely. So, you know, I will second that, I, yeah. you know, to support so, your local teachers, yeah, support the studios. Exactly. You know, we've, we've had our studio here in Miami for 17 years. So I, I know how hard it is to keep those doors open and how hard it has been over the last two years. I'll absolutely second that. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. You know, it's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.